Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to The Takeaway. I'm Janae Pierre, in for Melissa Harris-Perry. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. We begin with Turkey and Syria. An earthquake of a 7.8 magnitude shocked these countries along their shared border on February 6th. As of Friday morning, it's estimated that over 21,000 people have died. A young man named Yunus in Turkey told the BBC News about his fiance. I was planning to dress up with a wedding dress, but now I'll dress up with a funeral shroud. Thousands of buildings have collapsed, including hospitals and apartments, many with people still inside. Another man told Reuters about his wife, who was still trapped at that time. I didn't get any response from her for three hours. I don't know. I can't bring myself to say, but I don't have hope. An estimated 13.5 million people in Turkey and millions more in Syria have been put at risk. This woman displaced to a temporary shelter in Idlib, Syria, spoke to PBS NewsHour. We don't have any money to spend. We don't have food. We women are suffering in the cold and the rain. Here, no one is helping us. Aid workers and civilians alike have been working nonstop over the past few days to rescue survivors from the rubble. But it has been too slow for many, and supplies like food and warm shelter have been limited as temperatures in some areas have dipped below negative 21 degrees Fahrenheit. In areas of Syria already destabilized by the 12-year war, it's even slower. There's just one border crossing open, and many countries, including the U.S., have sanctions against routing financial aid to the government. But here in Idlib, the children have been under the rubble for three days. No one is helping them. Why? But time is running out for those still alive. As cranes lift slabs of cement and jackhammers smash through rubble, rescue efforts are punctuated with stretches of silence as rescuers listen for any noise to indicate that those trapped are still alive. I'm joined now by Shirin Jafari, reporter covering the Middle East at The World, produced by our partners PRX. Shirin, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. You're in Boston now, but in the past you've reported from Gaziantep, which was the epicenter of the earthquake. Can you tell us about what the city was like when you were there? Yeah, absolutely. So I was there in uh, the spring of 2021. I went there to report on uh, the situation of the refugees um, who had fled the war in Syria and and sort of uh, came over the border to Turkey, to Gaziantep, to start a new life. You know, when you drive into Gaziantep, it's a beautiful area. You know, the countryside was, uh, there was a lot of lush green farmlands, you know, at that time because it was spring, uh, the trees had blossomed. Um, This area of Gaziantep is known for the farmlands, but also the pistachio orchards. Uh, so it's really a nice area. 
beautiful area. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, this, uh, the food there is really delicious. Uh, Gaziantep is known for its delicious baklavas, you know, the pastry that is known in the Middle East. And then you have the citadel, the ancient citadel that has been destroyed now. So it's a really ancient city. It's a beautiful city. You have the bazaar with the spices and the smell and the knickknacks that you can find in, in the bazaar. Uh, but it's also home to millions of Syrians who had fled the war and they have taken shelter uh, in this area. I spoke with a man who was a farmer. He had fled um, his home in Syria and, you know, built a new life in Turkey. He had met this uh, Turkish farmer and they became sort of friends. Um, interestingly, they didn't speak each other's language, but they had sort of somehow made it possible to understand each other. And he was working at this guy's farm and they were best friends. It was such a beautiful friendship. And I reported on that. Mm -hmm. So these are the type of people that have been hit by this earthquake. And, you know, the Syrian refugees who live in this part of Turkey, they already live in very difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, most of them are living in homes and houses that were built not up to standard because they just, you know, they were just desperate to find some place to live. So now, you know, their homes have been destroyed and we're talking about people who don't have much to fall back on when their homes have been destroyed. Yeah. And I understand that you've been speaking with survivors in Syria. Can you tell me about the family you spoke to? Yeah, absolutely. Alhamdu is the person that I talked to on Monday, and he told me that he has been trying to find people from under the rubble. He, At the time the earthquake hit, he told me that he was so shocked that he couldn't decide what to do. He didn't know if he should leave the house uh, because he wasn't sure if it was an airstrike because this area of Syria, um, you know, the fighting goes on. Even just hours after the earthquake hit, we heard reports of another airstrike, which is just so surprising. And then he told me, so I wasn't sure if I should leave my home or sh I should stay. And then he decided to stay with his two kids. Um, his wife is pregnant as well. And luckily their home wasn't destroyed. But then when he stepped out and he started to drive around the area um, that he saw the, the, the level of devastation and he just realized what had happened. He told me people were digging their relatives from under the rubble with their bare hands. They were sort of um, putting their ears uh, to the rubble just to be able to hear if anybody is alive. Um, and if I can just tell you a bit about this part of Syria, um, the Idlib area in, in Syria is not under control of the Syrian government. It's run by this group ca called Hayat al-Tashir-Sham, which is sort of like a rebel group, the opposition opposition group, and they fought with the Syrian government. At one point, they had connections with Al-Qaeda, but in 2016, they said, no, 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 we don't have any connections with Al-Qaeda anymore, and we're going to be in charge of this, this area in Syria. But the problem is that they are not able to run an area where 4 million people live. They have no capacity to help these, these people who are now desperate. And so we are talking about also millions of people living in this area of Idlib who have been displaced by war several times in their lifetime. You know, they, I, I've been talking to people who have moved several times in different parts of Syria, displaced, and now they had started a life in Idlib and now this earthquake uh, once again 
they're homeless. I want to talk a bit about the rescue efforts. Um, are rescue efforts reaching the hardest hit areas in the region at all? So Turkey has been getting more help than Syria. Um, it's because, you know, the airports are operational, the government is operational, you know, the roads are tough to access, but search and rescue teams have been able to reach um, mo most of the affected areas. We're also talking about a really large area. We're talking about thousands of miles, uh, several cities, provinces. It's a, it's a big area that's been affected. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about Syria, it's a different story. Um, there are several crossing points from Turkey into Syria, but the problem is that the Syrian government doesn't allow aid to get into Syria from those crossing points because uh, it just wants to have control on where the aid gets to and just wants to have control over the aid that gets into the country. Mm -hmm. There is one border crossing that is open, Bab al-Hawa, and um, as of yesterday, four days after the earthquake, uh, we heard about six trucks that were able to get in through that border crossing. And there were some other help that got into Idlib today. But, you know, compared to the need, it's just the need is so huge. And, yeah. and this help is not really going to be making much of a difference. OK, we're updating you on the aftermath of this week's earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Quick break. We'll be right back after this. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. All right, we're back with Sharin Jafari from The World. We're talking about Syria and Turkey's recovery after the earthquake this week. For those who are indeed rescued, what kind of infrastructure is even left to give them medical care or, you know, address their basic needs? Nothing, nothing. So I, I spoke with a doctor in Idlib uh, on Monday, and he was just telling me that he's been working in this war zone for seven years. And he said, you know, what I'm seeing today is nothing like I've seen before. He said, uh, one problem is that the number of people coming into our hospital is just so many people that need care. The other problem is that other healthcare facilities, hospitals have been destroyed during the war. Mm -hmm. They've been bombed. They had to go underground to be able to operate. I reported on these hospitals who had gone underground to be able to operate, to not be bombarded. The other problem is that a lot of doctors and healthcare workers left because it's a war zone. They wanted to be able to raise their families in a safe place. They left for Europe, other countries. So the need is huge. And there is this just one hospital in that area where this doctor is working. And he said, you know, we only have a few ventilators and we're deciding, okay, who can be safe? Who, you know, practically can be safe? Um, and he said, yeah, we're standing at the entrance of the uh, hospital triaging and deciding who we can help and who we cannot. He was just devastated, honestly. Mm -hmm. Turkey has had an earthquake tax in place since 1999. Has the government been able to draw on this to get aid out? You know, the earthquake that hit Turkey in 1999 really 
brought about some changes. Um, there were stricter building codes that were introduced and the tax you mentioned. But the question is, how much of that is being implemented? I mean, we have heard from people who say, you know, the buildings were just built not up to standard. And this is part of the problem. And that's why we see these buildings just crumble when the earthquake happened, because they were just not built up to standard. So the question is, you know, were these building codes implemented? And it seems like not. There have already been so many people displaced and so many ripple effects on neighboring countries from the conflict in Syria. How will the aftermath of the earthquake impact the region? I think there's going to be a huge, huge need for people to be able to find a place to stay, to be able to eat and have clean water. You know, this is an area, like I said, you know, 97% of the population in Idlib live in extreme poverty and 80% of them rely on food assistance. That's according to the UN. This is before the earthquake. So now with this earthquake impacting so many people at such a scale, there's going to be a huge need for help, immediate help, because every hour counts. Yeah. Looking ahead here, what must be done to make recovery from something of this magnitude possible? I think it's a collective effort. Every country in the region can help if they can. And they, they are sending help. But I think that, again, the need is on such a scale that every country that is able to help must help. Shirin Jafari covers the Middle East for the world from PRX. Shirin, thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. <laughs> 